chapter 16. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my side, for I have been to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. So one thing a lot of people don't realize is that Jesus talked more about money than he talked about sin. He talked more about money than he did about righteousness. He talked more about money than he did about the kingdom of God. In fact, if you were to look at the scriptures, you would discover that he talked more about money than he did any other single topic that you find in the Gospels. So the reason he did this was because he was the word made flesh. And he understood probably a lot better than any of us do how devastating the love of money or or the love of stuff has actually caused humanity. You don't have to look at the world stage to see how many conflicts have been caused over stuff. All you have to do is watch when someone passes away. And you can watch some families and you will see how the family members begin to treat each other. All so they can get exactly what they're wanting from that estate. I've seen it multiple times. Now it's no coincidence that I chose today's short story for Stewardship Sunday. As people of faith, I want us to learn how to view money properly. Now I want you to hear a few things. I'm going to say them twice. Once now and again at the end of the the sermon. But there is absolutely nothing wrong with having money. There is nothing wrong with us working hard for a living and building wealth. But there can be a problem with how we view wealth once it's been accumulated. In fact, you don't even have to be all that wealthy in order to view money in an extremely unhealthy and unchristian way. Now, in order for us to understand today's short story, we're going to have to, again, immerse ourselves into Jesus' first century Middle Eastern world. We need to look carefully at where this story is placed in Luke's gospel within this pericope. If you back up a few verses, you're going to notice a couple of things. First, you're going to notice the previous parable that was told is one that we covered a few weeks ago. It was the parable of the dishonest steward. And that parable, it flows into a very well-known teaching from Jesus to his followers about wealth. He told them this, No slave can serve two masters, 
For a slave will either hate one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth, or mammon. Now, I want us to pay careful attention to what happens after Jesus gave this teaching. Just as soon as Jesus teaches the people that you can't serve both God and wealth, Luke tells us something that opens up for us something, an understanding of why this parable is so important to his audience then and even to us today. It's how we need to understand wealth and stewardship. Because in verse 14, Luke tells us that this was the reaction. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all this, and they ridiculed him. As soon as Jesus told the audience, you cannot serve both God and wealth, Luke tells us that the Jewish leadership ridiculed Jesus. What actually happens here is that the, the Pharisees, they, they have this, this way about them. They, they have this, this action. They turn their noses up in the air. They, they roll their eyes at what Jesus has just said. That they make a, a gesture of contempt towards this specific teaching from Jesus. You see, the Pharisees are lovers of money. And they don't want to hear what Jesus has just said. Because this teaching is contradicting what they are doing. They, they want to continue to be both servants of God. While at the same time living this, this lavish lifestyle that they enjoy. So now Jesus begins this story, and he does so with the description of our very first character. This is an unnamed rich man. But, but you see, Jesus, he, he carefully describes who this person is with a few key terms, terms that we probably miss because we live now and not then. First, we're going to notice how he's dressed. Every single day, we're told, this man would get out of bed, and he would dress in purple robes and fine linen. In the biblical times, purple clothing was extremely expensive. In fact, only the richest people all over town would, would have one purple robe to wear every so often at the most expensive times of year. But not this man. This man had enough purple robes in his closet that he can wear them every single day. Not only that, Jesus tells us that he wore this fine linen under his robes. In other words, church, Jesus is describing for us the kind of underwear this man wore. You see, it took a long time and a lot of effort to bleach out cloth to get it white in biblical days. And so most people didn't worry too much about what color their underwear was. But you see, this man, he insisted. He absolutely insisted that his underwear was made out of white Egyptian cotton. In the first century, there is no better quality or higher priced underwear than that. So this man, Jesus says, spent thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on his wardrobe just so he can look so good walking around town. But you see, the opulence doesn't end there. Jesus also tells us that he feasted sumptuously every day. What he means is that this rich man was so wealthy that he threw a great banquet every single day for his friends. Now, now we already know that banquets in the Middle East are huge affairs. There, there are tables filled with food and, and wine is flowing unceasingly. The, the choicest meats and the finest vegetables are handpicked by the slaves so that they can serve it to the guests. 
And so most rich people in Jesus' day, they, they feasted like this only on the most special occasions throughout the year, such as when a lost son returns home. But not this man. Every single day, he feasts like that. And because of his selfishness, this man, he, he doesn't allow his slaves to even observe the required Sabbath day rest. They have to get up even on the Sabbath day and fix this amazing feast for the friends to come over. They never get a chance to go and worship and, and to be the people that they need to be. He makes them work to provide these meals. Now, in contrast to the rich man, we have the other character in the story, and you know something, church? For the only time in any of Jesus' parables, Jesus gives this character something none of the other characters have. Jesus gives him a name. In all the other stories that we've looked at, and in all the other parables, the people have, gen they're just generic characters, aren't they? We have the good Samaritan or the prodigal son, the noble vineyard owner, but none of them have a name. But this poor man in this one lonely story, he has a name. His name is Lazarus. Well, now, actually, Lazarus is his English name. is what you and I call him. In Hebrew, his name would have been Eleazar. And with most biblical names, Eleazar has a very specific meaning. Eleazar translates into, my God helps, or the one whom God helps. Now, if we were this audience listening to Jesus in the first century and we heard that this man, Eleazar, is the poor man, our very first thought would have got, been, you have got to be kidding me, Jesus. Eleazar, the one whom God helps, is the poor man in the story? You see, Lazarus, he's not described as wearing any kind of garments, is he? He's not described as having any clothing on of any sort. Instead, his coverings, according to Jesus, instead of luxurious clothing, he's covered in sores. And when it comes to eating, we're told that all he can do is long to fill himself with the crumbs that fall from the rich man's table onto the ground. And you see, church, those crumbs were often swept up and fed to the dogs, so Lazarus longed to fill himself with dog food. And so day in and day out, Lazarus, this poor, poor man, he, he laid outside the rich man's home. In fact, he is laying right there at the gate of the rich man, the gate where all of the rich man's guests enter and leave, where the rich man himself passes by. The only thing separating La poor old Lazarus from this rich man's banquet is a gate, a, a gate of separation that could never, ever be breached. J just a few mere feet from where Lazarus is lying, there is this great banquet, unlike anything any person in this room has ever seen or experienced in our entire lives. Every day, there's more food wasted from this rich man's table at a single meal than what poor old Lazarus will ever see in his entire lifetime. And Jesus goes ahead and he, he tells us about the only thing that ever came to Lazarus. 
the street dogs wandering around. You see, Jesus tells us what we probably don't really realize here. These dogs are showing Lazarus compassion. More compassion than the rich man or his friends. Because we know, we know that dogs come and they lick their owners because they love them. Out of compassion. And, and dogs, when they're wounded, they, they lick their own wounds, wounds trying to make themselves feel better. Church, these dogs are not coming to Lazarus to, to torment him. They're coming to comfort him. They see another creature lying on the ground that needs help. So they gather around him to show mercy. Mercy with, that people refuse to show Lazarus. Well, as the story unfolds, the inevitable happened. Both of these men die. And in one final earthly tribute to this rich man, he's given a funeral and his body is buried. And we don't even know what happens to Lazarus' body. We're just told he dies. But as the story continues into the afterlife, we're told that the, the angels have come and lovingly transported Lazarus to another place. In our English translations, they don't do this story justice because what Jesus tells us is that Lazarus is taken and carried by these angels and laid into the bosom of Abraham. That is the heavenly realm. So, so the image is that, that they, these people are sitting around a new banquet table on the floor. And, and that Lazarus is sitting laying in the bosom of Father Abraham, the greatest Jewish ancestor there is. And as he lays there, he is in the seat of honor. Lazarus is the guest of honor. Sitting in the place only reserved for special guests and great men. But where is the rich man, church? Well, we're told he's in another place of the afterlife. It's not a great banquet hall where Father Abraham sits and presides. Instead, we're told it's a place of torment, a place called Hades. And even though they are far removed from one another, the banquet where Lazarus is and the rich man, they can still see each other and they can hear one another speak. And, and so, so the rich man, he calls out, Father Abraham, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus down here to dip his finger in water and to cool my tongue, for I am in agony from all of the flames. Now, two interesting things happen almost simultaneously in this exchange from the rich man to Abraham. First, the rich man, he can no longer hide that he knows Lazarus. He knows this man, doesn't he? He knows his name. He recognizes him as the man who lay at his gate. So the rich man has been aware of Lazarus all along, and he knew what condition he was in. And secondly, secondly, the rich man reveals that nothing has changed with him at all. Even after the predicament he has found himself in, where, where he is in torment and being burned, he is the same selfish man he has always been. He doesn't apologize to Lazarus. He has the chance to do so, but he doesn't. He, he doesn't show any kind of expression of sorrow for his poor actions, but instead he continues to remain self-focused. Have mercy on me, he says. And tell Lazarus that he has to come down here and serve me, even here in the afterlife. There, there's no apology that's, begin, that's been given. He's demanding service. 
When they were alive, the the rich man paid no heed to that that worthless, trash human who had barely stayed alive outside his gates. And yet now this rich man, now that he's a little bit in pain, Lazarus must do something about this, Abraham. Talk about arrogance. Now the rich man understands his world extremely well. This rich man, he he knows that he can play to Abraham's sympathies. And so he cries out and and he states something that ties him to Abraham. He calls him my father. My father Abraham, he says. Because he knows his lineage. He he knows that in the Middle Eastern way of life, that the patron of the family, the, the one who is in charge of the family, they are duty bound to take care of their family. Family is the most important thing. And so I'm going to call you Father, Father Abraham, with the expectation that you are required to do something. You're required to order Lazarus down here to relieve my suffering. But it doesn't work. Because the kingdom of God isn't like the kingdom of man. And there's a new reality at play now. And so Abraham now has to become the bearer of bad news to this rich man. When we read Abraham's response, we we do so with the understanding there is no judgment coming from Abraham here. There's no condemnation Father Abraham simply lays out the truth for the rich man. In true compassion, he says, My dear, dear son, remember, in your lifetime, you received all these wonderful and good things. And Lazarus only received evil things. Well, now, my son... Now he's comforted. And you're in anguish. And besides that, there's this large chasm. And I can do absolutely nothing about it. You're on that side and we're on this side. It's kind of like the gate between you and Lazarus. You made your choices, my child. And now... You have to spend eternity living with those choices. So that division between the rich man and Lazarus, well, it has reversed, hasn't it? Lazarus is comforted, he is blessed, and the rich man is without. And he's reminded that in life he had every opportunity... The rich man had every opportunity to take these blessings he had received to God and to pass them on to Lazarus. And he chose not to do that. In fact, Abraham says the rich man chose to pass only evil things on to Lazarus. And so the roles are reversed and the rich rich man is in pain while Lazarus is comforted. Now, here's the thing, church. There's a whole lot to this story. There's a whole lot more that could be said about this short story. I've I've only been able this week to, to touch the tip of this iceberg. But today's lesson for us, it, it centers on this word stewardship. And I really do want us all to understand that Scripture never, 
ever condemns anyone for having wealth. And it never condemns anyone for not having wealth. And people who have more money, they're not loved more by God than others. And people who don't have money, they're not being punished by God for whatever reason. But what scripture does criticize here is when people fail. When people fail to see material possessions in the way that God sees material possessions. You see, church, you and I, we have the honor of being stewards, stewards of God's treasures. And those treasures can become blinding if we're not careful. There's always this potential in this world, church. It's always out there on the periphery of our lives. And any of us can fall into this temptation and begin to focus on the stuff instead of focusing on God. It is a real danger. And that's why Jesus taught about money more than any other topic. We have to remain on our guard at all times. We must always be watching and praying against becoming corrupt in our understanding of what money is and what wealth is supposed to be. This man, he, he used all of his wealth, all of the resources he had for his own self-indulgent lifestyle. And the reality is that you and I, we live in a world a lot like this, don't we? Especially as we enter into this next Christmas push, when merchants and businesses try to equate to us that stuff always equals how much love we have for someone, even if it means we have to go into a huge amount of debt to get that kind of love. Now, I've been here long enough to know that there's not anyone in this congregation not a single person in this congregation who is as opulent or self-focused as this rich man was. This man cared nothing about God. He didn't care about the scriptures. He didn't care about his staff. He didn't even care most especially about the poor of his community. And then even after death, he could only see Lazarus as someone who could come do something for him. He never repented for his mistreatment of another human being. And so Jesus tells us that mammon, that, that wealth, had become this man's master. But even though we, none of us, are this, like this man, that temptation is still there, church. It stares us in the face every single day, pulling us into this false narrative of giving and receiving stuff. This, this false narrative of showing love and affection through materialism, through, through mammon, instead of through service and time and real affection. So it's the dangers evident in this parable that caused me to, to preach it today. It's the dangers evident in this parable that reminds me every year we have to have a stewardship Sunday at Aldersgate. Sure, we need to operate this church. We, we need to raise up deeply devoted disciples of Jesus, and that takes money. We, we need to continue to reach out into the cornerstone ministries that we, have, that we hold dear that cost money. 
We, we want to continue to bring relief to the suffering and light into the darkness. That all costs money, church. But you see, I'm your pastor. And I'm not nearly as worried about all of that stuff as I am about each and every one of you. Because Stewardship Sunday is really about us. Because as we pledge, as we continue to to want to give and tell what we're going to give, it, it reminds us that what we have, what we write on this pledge card, it's not even our money to give, is it? It's already God's money. And so Stewardship Sunday as a church, it, it allows us to join together as a community of people as a family united under the headship of Jesus Christ, that we are choosing to push back against the temptation of mammon. And instead, we are choosing to join together in embracing God's holy kingdom. A kingdom where it doesn't matter anything. A kingdom where the rich and the poor they live together in peace. They live together in harmony. And most importantly, church, they live together in love. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, may the grace and peace of Jesus rest on your lives. Amen.